is Startup Data Science, the podcast where novices can learn decoding in data science. We are on the second part of Lesson 3, and just as a reminder, in Lesson 3, the first half just reviews the five or six major components of what a convolutional neural network is, and so that's very informative. gives a piecemeal construction of all the concepts you need to understand. And then the second part covers what you need to do to prevent overfitting. And you learn things about dropout, as well as a way to normalize your inputs. So that it's called like batch norm or something like that. And then there's the homework. So the homework was a review lesson zero, one, and two. Basically, as we get into lesson three proper, we're seeing that you're just constantly using everything from the previous lessons. So you'll see that with where everybody is in their learning, we're in different spots because you're just covering everything all at once. And then, yeah, the thing with the homework, there's basically like, it's called the state farm competition where there's a picture of a person in a car and you just have to tell if they're distracted or not while they're driving. You're supposed to enter and win that Kaggle competition. So yeah, um, so we're just gonna start with where everybody is at in their learning to get a picture of sort of where everybody can be at this point in the material. Maybe Aperva, start? Yeah, so I have completed viewing all the three videos, all the four videos, lesson zero, lesson one, lesson two, and lesson three. But uh, I this week I wanted to go back and code a little bit more just to get over my initial anxiety, which comes from not coding a lot. So this week I focused on building my own VGG model from scratch, which is a part of the lesson one notebook. And uh, it's a good thing that I hadn't attempted to do this during lesson one because uh, a lot of terms were not familiar to me, uh, like what backpropagation is or what uh, different layers are compose a convolution neural network. And it was just nice to have all that knowledge and then build a model from scratch because I didn't have to wonder like, what does this even mean? What does a dense layer mean? Cool. Yeah. For me, where I am right now, so I actually still have not made the submission to Kaggle. So that involved the cats and dogs from like the very first lesson, this state farm competition. This time, like I have not submitted still, but I did go through a lot of like reading material. I feel like my understanding of the theory and um, also like looking at the code, but not by Jeremy, but like the other people that he recommended, like Michael Nielsen's material so he has the book neural networks and deep learning by the way jeremy asked for people to read three chapters of his book but yeah so that's why i basically did this whole time yeah i spent about 25 hours like actually doing the questions the exercises of it yeah some had like questions about proofs how do you like prove that the equations for the back propagation algorithm actually is the thing that they say they are. So I did some proofs, I did some like implementing neural network from scratch without using any deep learning libraries. So that was Mm. pretty cool. Yeah, that's all like from 
Michael Nielsen's book. Yeah, so that's where I am at right now. Um, hopefully in the future, yeah, I'm going to be doing a lot more of the coding part. Yep. And for me, I just finished Lesson 3, so, and was reading over the notes, and that's where I'm at. And didn't have a ton of time to, yeah, I did more hours, but, like, was busy, um, like, writing a grant. I started a nonprofit thing, so just got, I got, I'm, yeah. I was doing other things. Cool. So, I guess, heart pass, so emotional that gives context for like where everybody's at. We're in different spots now, but we can still talk about sort of emotional hardships we have overcome to start and continue learning data science. So for me, it was uh, now that we're into kind of six weeks of learning, what I've noticed is when I start learning this week, I forget, I've forgotten what I've done in the previous week. And that I've, I'm struggling with that still, like trying to keep some thread, some link going on from week to week just so that I don't have to spend a ton of time revising what I learned last week. But um, I just realized then it was just the anxiety was just kind of making me less productive. So then I stopped learning and I just started coding. It's something much more tangible. I could be more productive in lesser amount of time. So that's what I did this week. So I find that this strategy of alternating between learning, which is reading and coding, is kind of helping me to stay on track better. Well, maybe for me this week, this coming week will be the coding week. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so one of my, one of my hard pasts is that, yeah, I still haven't really touched Jeremy's code and played around with myself. Like part, part of the issue I think was just like, I guess me being stupid somehow, like letting the Amazon instance run for a while. I didn't even run it for much like this, uh, like last month, but I got charged 120 bucks. (laughs) And so that made me feel like you know what i could just like not i could still keep learning by actually going through like a lot of the reading material and that's actually another thing that i found was like the reading material even like for the lesson two stuff is still like quite a lot if you actually go through the exercises since i'm still doing the three chapters for nielsen's book i've only done two but those two chapters plus the stanford material that he was recommending that took the whole 25 hours i wasn't even able to like complete or even start chapter three for that because when i looked at chapter three it was quite Uh, quite long as well uh, so that was kind of a challenge for me but later i will discuss in the next section how i'm actually going to prevent this i guess anxiety of like touching Yeah, that's my thing. For me, like, uh, yeah, totally on with uh, wherever I was at. I was, like, reading or hearing things, and I was like, man, did I know what that was, like, a few (laughs) weeks ago? I actually forgot what that is. Like, I I forgot. (laughs) Which is a little painful. It really is. It's just like, I'm just like, I'm just not on top of it. And I do think, yeah. Just like with uh, learning how to code the first time, because um, I learned through a boot camp 
about Flatiron School. Um, you know, like, after you finish and it's an immersive experience, like, you had to keep on doing it every day for a while to get it to really stick. And I feel like this is a lot of concepts it's pretty abstract um you know it's not super tangible so it 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 is easy to kind of forget the pieces of it especially like particular abstract concepts but the other thing is and sort of what i'm realizing and maybe a, a consolation prize is that uh you know the three when you get to lesson three, like, and you realize everything's all just one big thing, like, it is just mm. one, like, yeah, deep learning is just one abstract machine, sort of like, you know, I don't know how a car runs, but it's like, oh, if you knew how a car runs, then it's just like a blueprint of how it works, and then sort of the details of getting each piece to work really well. And, like, that's basically what deep learning is. It's just, like, an infinite calculator algorithm thing. And then it's a bunch of pieces to it and sort of, yeah, maybe one or two concepts you might forget. But it's it just that concept belongs there to perform a certain role. It's what, like, it won't be too hard to pick up again. But yeah. In the introductory video, uh, Jeremy also mentions that this particular teaching uh, pedagogy that they have employed is actually, uh, it's kind of well known in education circles, it's known as knowledge in pieces, where you basically purposely teach different working parts and then later on you see how the all the working parts come together to make the whole machine. And uh, it's just a nice realization at the end of lesson three when you know at least some of the things and then you still have the confidence to, uh, uh, you're less anxious to go back and revise on things that you're rusty on. That is real. Um, so, Heart Future, um, data science uses and concepts we're excited about through the lens of our perspective. You going first, Alex? Oh, sure. Let's see. Um... So concepts I'm excited about, let's see, you know, I thought the concept of dropout was pretty cool. And this was something that Edric had told me about before and that got mentioned during the class. It was like the random forest problem, which I don't know what it is because I haven't studied machine learning. Like I can't explain exactly what it is, but um, I think what the idea of dropout was um, getting rid of some of the weights that you memorize in your models or some of the like data points i guess a lot of it too like 50 percent which to me sounds like a lot i was kind of shocked by how high that was um you basically uh develop a slightly different um like algorithm every time uh, for each layer so that because it's being based off, it's not like connected, it's being based off of like a different starting point in a way. Or like it has to fill in the gaps. So I thought that was just like a smooth way to um, like make something really efficient. And it was like, not even that hard to do. It's like, oh, this concept was invented like three years ago. 
No, I guess it's like a standard technique <laughs> that you can't live without. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. So what you just said was, um, so you mentioned random forest. So like the context of why people generally use random forests is, so the forest stands for a bunch of trees. But the thing is with the trees though, if you have one tree, a tree generally could easily overfit the data. So um, when you run it, like it does well on the training set pretty well, but later on you might find that in the test set that it performs poorly by having a bunch of these random forests where you, I guess, like start with a small like subset of the data, you train one small tree and, but you have a bunch of these different trees trained with different data sets. I guess like you're able to mitigate that overfitting and like by averaging out the results of quote ensemble. Yeah, in, the, in that case, yes, yeah, so it's the same thing. Like, dropout helps us like, nice. prevent oh, over. Actually, there's one more thing that I got really excited about. Like, at the end of lesson three, uh, Jeremy shows sort of his six-step, like, process for creating, like, yes. a top 20 performing, like, yeah. a digit recognizer. But, like, just, like, that sort of, like, high-level, like, procedure for like and none of it's really hard either this really is the promise of like hey as long as you can do the work you can really get world-class results with any data set that just like could benefit any social like cause that where there just aren't enough like data scientists doing stuff which is like totally amazing that like he did that in an afternoon he like in an afternoon he got 99 point seven percent accuracy for uh basically taking the vg vgg model and adding in um back i guess uh the back normalization which he didn't explain how it works and it sounds like it's a math uh like a deeper math topic but um and i don't even know what normalization of inputs are either where you like subtract the mean and divide it by the standard deviation so I'm like far away from understanding exactly what it is, but uh, like it's a standard technique. You can just use Keras, I think, to just one liner it into the uh, like neural network. And yeah, he just redid the VG model using that, and it's awesome. So I was like, oh wow, like you know, that's something that I'm going to be reusing in the future for sure just as a starting point, like follow each of these steps one at a time. And like, that's a great starting point. So that was like super, super cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to watch that again. Uh, like that was my like, aha, like amazing wow moment last time, like last podcast. I was like, how did you just get 99.7% on this data set? And you also have to like explain your thought. Like, and, I don't know, it feels just like, uh, there's some sort of like mastery to it that Jeremy yeah, has. It's that, like the mastery um, of simplicity. I want to get to it at some point. It's like, you know, like <laughs> like in martial arts, yeah. it's like a really straight punch or something. Like the shortest distance. And from an academic point of view, actually, I found that uh, the last part of lesson three pretty fascinating. Like you start with a linear model, which is just so simple. And then you have a, an accuracy of 92.5. 
and you slowly make your model more and more complex just adding one layer of complexity each time and in the end like you're still pretty good until i think he does some data augmentation too uh, i don't remember and back normalization is probably the last step where he's really like the model has just so much finesse and then he just uses an ensemble of all of these <laughs> yeah. models and just creates like this one it's like a you know it's like a witch bent over a cauldron <laughs> and mixing all kinds of things and suddenly magic happens when you add that last tier of unicorn and that's how I look at ensemble model as and <laughs> that was pretty awesome the way he did that and um, I remember looking at this uh, looking up at this something online and it seems that ImageNet model is uh, the ImageNet competition is no longer going to run or something mainly because people have now just started really? creating ensembles instead of actually creating new models because ensembling is which is actually giving you that marginal uh, edge over other people so i mean it's a really powerful concept that i i want to learn soon ensembling that's fascinating because like i when i think of neural networks they're I mean, but one set of neural networks anyway, to me, is an ensemble. Like, yeah. you have neural networks on top of neural networks, and those are, to me, that's kind of like an ensemble. Already. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's weird. <laughs> Any other uh, heart feature things? Yeah, so what I'm excited about uh, is I just shelled out some big money to get my own GPU for my own deep learning rig. <laughs> so that what I'm excited about it is, uh, yeah, back in 2012, like I built my own PC rig, but it's just like <laughs> collecting dust somewhere and not being used. And now I have a reason to use it again, and it's gonna be fun. And I also don't have to think about like so much about like, <laughs> did I turn off the AWS instance or not, or did I turn it on, like. Awesome, that's great. And hopefully it'll like motive push me to keep learning and like actually participate in the Kaggle competitions without yeah, just like worrying so much about like um this whole I don't know, it's kinda of stupid because like thinking about it, like shelling that amount of money like maybe isn't as cost efficient as like actually having AWS since like when you train the model at AWS you might only use it for like a couple hours a day. How much was it again? But you know what? Whatever. I'm, I just did it. So Man. not going back now. 700 bucks. Oh, you have your own <laughs> on-demand instance now. Yep. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's faster than P P2 what, uh, instances or any <laughs> of those instances. What, so here we go. What, how did you research like what to build? Since I built my own PC, uh, the only thing I really need is the graphics card. And I think probably I need to make sure that the power supply has enough juice. I'm not exactly sure right now because like I don't have the computer with me. It's actually at like the, the work office, uh, my work office. So um, I need to check to see if the power supply actually is enough. But yeah, the ne just the next thing is like what GPU will work. Um, I just looked online, like, what is the best price for consumer-grade, like, machine learning? Uh, 
And yeah, the GTX 1080 Ti came up. But you, you could get the one without the Ti for like maybe $200 cheaper. So, I mean, yeah, that's pretty good. But you know, I just wanted to feel like I'm going to do high end stuff. So, <laughs> there you go. Yep. Cool. That's what I'm excited about. Do you need any additional cooling? Cooling? Um, I think the, the one, the. Yeah, I actually have like extra coolers that I haven't used. So, as, as you can just see, like this story here is like I buy things and like really try to future proof <laughs> it without even like thinking about the actual like use. So, I have like extra cooling, but I think the thing itself has uh, cooling for it. Hopefully, it's enough, but yeah, if not, I, I could just go back home and get my other two sets of uh, fans. <laughs> Great. Yep. Cool. That's cool. That's what I'm excited um, about. Yeah. Definitely. Really cool. Mine passed. Uh, things we wish mm-hmm. we knew, quote, five hours ago that would save us time and energy while learning. Oh, I have something to share here. So um, this was something I wish I knew like an hour or two hours ago when I was just getting anxious about uh, not remembering and just trying to figure out ways how do I really uh, like keep the link on when over the weekend I'm not doing anything or whatever so uh, now the new strategy that I am trying is uh, as I said before uh, trying to alternate between coding and learning and just looking uh, like just searching on YouTube for what cool things people are doing in deep learning like even that is a part of study and just making sure that the five hours that I've assigned for this uh, topic don't go waste and I just don't end up browsing Reddit or something. so it's just important like just to make kind of a list of all the things that you can do which are related to deep learning maybe joining a slack group looking at the forums looking at different videos of what people have done and even i think that is also like time well spent how about you alex i do i I do have a question about like what an epoch is actually like i was i was watching the uh things and i was noticing you know Jeremy would put in like oh, 04 epochs and 12 epochs. I have a hypothesis, I guess. Two varying hypotheses for what could be happening. Either it's like making another layer um, each time an epoch runs, or each time an epoch runs, the weights are reassigned or something like that. So it's like doing weight assignment again, and it's just like figuring out which one is best or something. But I actually was a little confused about what an epoch is now that I was watching the material. So that's something I just was gonna, that's something that I wish I knew like five hours from now, I guess, rather than five hours ago. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I I mean, I could tell you a little bit. So um, so we, we, we already know about um, gradient descent, right? So gradient descent, just basically like we walk the, down the hill. But when you compute gradient descent, um, you actually have to compute the cost function for each training example, right? So, but the thing is it, with deep learning or just like learning with neural networks in general, so you have 60,000, let's say images, um, that's going to really take a long time. 
So what people do is instead of doing the whole gradient descent, people do instead stochastic gradient descent. So stochastic gradient descent. Oh, yeah, that's um, right. Now I remember what it is. Yes. Yeah. Ahead, do you remember actually. now or like? I, I, yeah. Go so ahead. yeah, SGDs um, like has the the idea of only starting, only actually computing uh, a, a small batch, a mini batch, a small batch of the training examples. Okay. Basically, the assumption is um, as long as your, uh, I guess, the the number of samples is large enough, if you average the that the cost function for that, it's basically going to be a good approximation of the uh, cost function for the whole, say, sixty thousand training set. So it's just like basic statistics. Um, so depending on the size of your uh, mini batch, you could make it either like run faster by having a smaller amount in in a batch, or you could be more accurate by having a bigger um, you know batch. But I guess you, it'll be slower in the long run. Mm. So an epoch is basically you're going through um, all the I think all the mini batches such that you've gone through all the um all the training examples so if there's 60,000 examples uh total like maybe let's say you have i don't know like uh something small uh a small mini batch maybe like is 15 or 20 if you do that enough times you've got your you should have been able to run through all the training data and uh, of the 60,000, and that would give you one epoch. And so um, you do several epochs to basically keep iterating and improving the uh, basically, yeah, the, the, the cost. Uh, you want to minimize the cost. Uh, yeah. Wait, so does that make sense? The, so the cost is the amount of time it takes to run the, the program or? Sorry, cost us in like what's the difference between the actuals versus the predicted values? Oh, got it. So, sure. Yeah, those the, the the yeah the cost function is could be like the quadratic function. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, is that the same thing as a loss yeah. function? I think they're the same. Okay, yeah. cool. I I just been calling it the loss function. So I got lost and um, but uh, so let me see if I get this straight. Because one thing that I saw that Jeremy was doing was that uh. When he read, for instance, when he was doing the witch's brew at the end, like uh, the first, he did the first thing, like, I think he did, he was, it was like one, four, then 12. And I think it was the number of epochs as he was going down the layers. And so if, like you said, you want like bigger batches, because I, I guess you want the batch size to be bigger you you want all 60,000 if you want it to be accurate and then you want like small like more numerous smaller batches if you want it to go faster i guess because of the amount of time it takes to process the information um yes and yeah. like i mean yeah good and so i guess one thing so i guess as he's getting as the layers continue to stack and there's more sort of knowledge in the deep learning system um 
he's having it just go faster at by like having more batches i'm assuming with like a smaller like a fewer number of images per batch and uh like i'm guessing it just divides it by four evenly or divided by 12. i haven't actually looked at the code but um and then uh yeah i guess he's just doing that for convenience like yeah, I think it's like really about yeah speeding up the training process, but yeah, but like yeah finding the trade off between uh yeah I guess the middle ground between like speed and accuracy. Got it. And yeah, I guess even if he just kept it at you know batch size two instead of twelve, it would probably be more or less the same, but just take a lot longer. What's the relationship between epochs and batch size? So you have a bunch of batches in an epoch, and then you, you run several epochs to see, I don't know, like, yeah, how much are you actually performing on the, you know, the training set or the test set? Uh, it's just, yeah, like, basically, you, you could run several uh, epochs to figure that out. Because maybe in the very beginning, your first few epochs, your uh, performance actually goes up by a lot. Um, but maybe in the later epochs, since you've tra trained several times already, you're going to reach an asymptotic curve where like, um, the more you do it, like it, it'll just stick to the same, maybe accuracy or whatever metric you're using. So yeah, it's just like, yeah, several, you, you have several epochs. Um, it's just a bunch of iterations. An epoch is a bunch of mini batches run together right. to improve and the cost. For each epoch, like, is that when you run an epoch, do you automatically create a new layer? Or when you finish that set of epochs, then you create a new layer? That's something I was a little confused on. I mean, like, yeah, so where I'm coming from is, again, like, I haven't really touched Jeremy's uh, like, code, but, right. like, from what I've seen from Michael Nielsen's book, like, you don't add any layers or so like you, yeah again like the neural network that i was dealing with isn't a convolution neural network it's just a a normal neural network um standard i guess and basically the the point is just to like change the weights i'm not like it it's just like here are a bunch of weights into the network i want to like change them via backprop and gradient descent that's how i understood it okay can we look at epochs uh, as a k-fold cross-validation? Is it similar to um, that? I, like, based on the, so the example I looked at was the, with the MNIST data set, um, Nielsen didn't actually do cross-validation mm -hmm. there, but I mean, I guess I could see that you probably could um i mean since like you're you're already no what i mean is like is it the same principle like in k-fold cross-validation you basically cut uh like created folds of data and then you analyze across each fold and then you average the errors across all the folds and you got another average error so is it is that what an epoch is also doing so, Similar thing, like an epoch has several batches, and then you run your model and you, through backprop, I guess, you adjust the weights and you get certain errors. And then you do this across several epochs 
and you get several errors which you average am i right yeah in i thinking think this it's way, actually like about the same i mean it's still different in a sense that like from the example that i saw through nielsen um so the mini batches so the mini batch mm -hmm. is basically a set of items that i could i think it's random with replacement so i think i could uh maybe i have an apple and an orange mm. uh for the first mini batch but later i might have that same apple and orange for the second or maybe the next time i might have an apple and an apple or the next time an orange and an orange um and so there's like replacement i feel like mm. a fold doesn't let you explicitly do like replacement like yeah you're picking you know it's either like are you in the test set or are you in the training mm. set? Yeah. So I think that's yeah. slightly different, but it's still got the same idea. It lets you like run it for mm. a certain amount of time. Yeah. And in this case, like number of epochs and then see how your, uh, mm. yeah, like your performance is uh, doing. Is it going up in general mm. or is it going down? And by how much is it like, are, are you probably in a place where you've converged to a local minima? Um, I think, yeah, I think that's, yeah, right. it helps there. I also, I found that to be really helpful, Aprova, that comparison, but also saw that when Jeremy was going over his code, that when he looked over the epoch results, he would tend to look at the last epoch as though that was the definitive one, as opposed to like an average of all the epochs. So I thought yes. that might imply that it's different, although I don't know why or what. Right. Yeah, that was another question I had. Like, the weights of the previous epoch, are they the input weights for the next epoch? That was a question that I had. And why Why do we save weights? Like, that was, which is why I was thinking, like, what's the need to save weights? And it's not necessary that the last epoch will give the best results. So he would save all the weights and then just take the weights of the best yeah, um... uh, epoch. Yeah, to answer the question, yes, you actually start with the uh, old weights. So, like, after you finish Epoch 1, the next uh, Epoch, you take the weights from Epoch 1. Um, like, there is actually a, in the uh. Fast AI course, uh, I think for this lesson, I think there, somewhere in, in there they have a recommendation about, yeah, how to, like, change alpha. So alpha, or sorry, is learning rate how to change the learning rate so in the learning rate. yeah in in yeah. the first few e epochs i think it's actually they, they say it's okay to have a high learning rate so you could generally find where maybe the general location of the a good yeah. local minima is or really mm -hmm. like the, we want the global minima mm -hmm. but once you uh once the epochs get higher and higher you could actually tune the learning rate to get smaller so that it just kind of sits instead of like overshooting mm. a local minima so yeah so right. by that then yeah like i assume that what i just said earlier which was um weights from the early epoch are being used in the later epoch i think that is true mm. Mm. oh good to know cool um mind future so clever ways to remember slash use concepts and skills. 
one thing jeremy uh, said which i totally agree is just having whatever code you write in jupyter notebook i didn't know this that we could execute bash commands through jupyter notebook just by adding a symbol and that has been very useful since i've started documenting my code where i would like even the bash commands where i would uh, like make the data favorable to the guidelines of keras library which is have those sample valid test train sets everything that i did in command line now i'm doing it all through jupyter notebook so i just have one documentation place now yeah i did that when i back when i coded stuff but i found it pretty challenging actually since i was like i guess you know with some of the command line things i found it to be a little ugly because it was like just repeating the same chunks of code and i was like oh this should be a method so i tried to like make it a method in use iteration <laughs> but then it was just like kind of hard to get it mm. to work because i think mixing the methods with like the command line stuff inside it like maybe it was out of context or something like the change like scope mm. within the method and i was just like uh this isn't what i want to be working on while i'm doing deep learning so it's a distraction for me so i stopped <laughs> but, um <laughs> one of the uh <laughs> one thing that i learned this time around was that one of these things that's been hard for me in the deep learning class as well has been like having like quantitative like defaults or like intuitions because i just don't have that so one intuition that i gained or heard about today was uh like edric was just mentioning like the learning rate a good starting learning rate is 0.1 and then after you do one iteration you should I guess increase mm -hmm. it by an order of magnitude every time. So then you do 0 0.01 and then 0 0.001. Like, and that's, I guess, an intuition that I didn't have before, but now I know. And I, yeah, the, the way, and yeah, so I thought that was cool. Yeah, for me, I don't really have any. <laughs> yeah. Until next time. So. Then let's just do, I guess, your main takeaway from this week. Um, for me, I guess it was just learning about Dropout and um, just like, yeah. I feel like that's just like, a, it's, it's it just seems so obvious. I guess just with deep learning in general, it's like, finding patterns with how numbers interact with each other and like coming up with a rule and if you can use like math like i, I think you end up do using complicated math to make something happen but the concepts tend to be like pretty straightforward more or less it's like oh you just want to normalize the inputs like yeah um you know, back norm or whatever it's called is like maybe a deep math topic, but ultimately we're doing something that you can learn about like in your first year of college, something like that. So I was like, that's cool. For me, uh, my takeaway is that like Nielsen's <laughs> book is pretty awesome. Like I encourage people to read it. It I feel like I have a much better 
appreciation for just neural networks in general because like it, it i think it really covers the code but also like the theoretical foundations of it of like why the code actually works and vice versa like if you have the math understanding of like derivatives and stuff like yeah seeing it without any of the deep learning libraries makes you like i feel like really understand what's going under the hood so yeah is he using python yeah python 2.7 not python 3 that's for sure <laughs> Cool. <laughs> For me, the main takeaway was, I think, uh, back normalization. And uh, when I was uh, doing other data science projects like random forest and linear regression, I always did normalization. But I hadn't thought of normalization in the context of image recognition. Like, actually, uh, you can also like normalize inputs based on their RGB values and there is one function called VGG preprocess in the model that does that and that was pretty cool like I also learned about matrix slicing and striding something I had done in high school but hadn't like actually understood why anybody would need to do that but I finally finally have perspective nice. finally that connecting the nice. dots <laughs> It was nice. <laughs> it's like, whatever, the 10 year punchline, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think that goes back to just like the whole uh, like premise of like why they're teaching this. Like, start with the exciting stuff first, then like wor worry about the details later. That's how I think yeah. math should be taught. Exactly. Yeah. Totally agree with that. Cool. All right. Well, thank you everyone for being here. Um, I will see you all next week. Thanks for listening to episode seven of Startup Data Science. In the next episode, we will discuss our experiences with the first part of lesson four of practical deep learning for coders, which talks about recommendation systems. Till next time.